This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 25th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we've published several research articles on COVID-19 and on a variety of topics. So let's go through them and see what we've learned. First up, maybe transmission. We've published two pieces on transmission in closed quarters. The first was on a U.S. naval vessel, the Theodore Roosevelt. So what happened there? Well, the Roosevelt is an example of something we've seen in many settings, in particular repeatedly in nursing homes, which are closed communities. Of course, a naval ship which is on an extended cruise is an extreme example of that. The outbreak occurred fairly early during the COVID-19 epidemic when we knew less about the disease and its transmission. The first cases presented 13 days into the cruise. By the time the ship reached the naval base at Guam, four days later, there were already 400 contacts. There certainly were attempts to isolate cases and quarantine contacts, but despite that, there was rapid spread with 1,271 confirmed infections and likely a number of other undiagnosed infections. As with almost anything else in the Navy, officers were better off than enlisted men, and there was a higher attack rate for those who were working in confined areas like the reactor. Unlike nursing home outbreaks, the sailors aboard the ship were generally young and healthy with a median age of only 27. Still, 23 crew members ended up requiring hospitalization, four of whom needed the ICU and one of whom died. So this disease is bad, I think. Um, and in a setting like this where rapid transmission can occur in an uncontrolled fashion, or a relatively uncontrolled fashion, bad things happen. Can disagree with that, Eric. When it comes to COVID, bad things happen. I find the Roosevelt event striking in the speed with which transmission occurred, which in retrospect is really not that surprising. It's a closed quarter. Individuals who are infected may not have symptoms, and thus the ability to transmit in that environment has been seen for decades and again is seen here with upwards of 1200 individuals infected in days i think that it just speaks to how fast this virus can spread and we've seen that in the public health arena but in this closed environment where presumably there was an individual infected who boarded the ship unbeknownst to himself or anyone else and then ignited such a transmission event. Fortunately, they had diagnostics on board, so they were able to sort this out relatively quickly and then move to containment and to care for those who were infected. But as you point out, several required ICU stay and one died. So it still has a significant morbidity and mortality, even in young, healthy individuals. But it's a reminder of the paucity of symptoms and signs individuals can have and the speed with which it can transmit in closed environments. What makes the Roosevelt different from nursing homes is not only the age and health of the sailors, but also the fact that the Navy has all the resources at its disposal that it wants. It had, as you pointed out, testing available, which didn't happen during the early nursing home outbreaks for sure. And it has the ability to order people around and set whatever parameters they want. And yet the outbreak was still very large. So even under optimal circumstances, 
in a very non-optimal setting, admittedly, the outbreak still went on and there were still a decent amount of morbidity and some mortality. So the second outbreak occurred in a different branch of the military. What happened there? The story with this outbreak, which occurred among Marine recruits, has some similarities, but it points to how challenging it is to come up with effective control measures, even in a captive population. So these recruits were coming to Paris Island, and before they did, they were first instructed to quarantine at home for two weeks. And then before going to the Marine training facility, they spent an additional two weeks on a college campus where there was a supervised two-week quarantine. At that point, all the recruits with negative results could go on to Paris Island. So each week, classes of between 350 and 450 recruits arrived and were assigned roommates within their platoons. Several measures were taken to prevent transmission once they arrived. Um, those included social distancing, masking, except while sleeping or eating, routine hand washing, and room cleaning. Most instruction occurred outdoors, and in addition, recruits were prohibited from leaving the campus, as well as the instructors, because the instructors were also not allowed to leave campus, and no one was allowed to interact with the support staff, the cleaning staff, etc. And there was testing on arrival, and then again on day 7 and 14, with isolation of any cases. Despite all these measures, there were still cases. Some recruits turned out to be infected when they showed up after their home quarantine. Others developed symptoms or were found to have asymptomatic infection one week after showing up. Several additional recruits were positive at two weeks, suggesting that there was transmission within the facility, and the epidemiology really confirmed that. Several viral samples were recovered and analyzed by whole genome sequencing, and that revealed the presence of clusters. In other words, transmission had occurred during the recruits after they showed up. Much of that transmission occurred between roommates or individuals in nearby rooms or shared bathrooms. And fortunately, the clusters were confined to individual platoons. So there were a relatively small number of cases in this group of individuals. But it shows that even under very controlled conditions, transmission can occur. This is a bit discouraging, but transmission was limited even under circumstances where people were interacting at close quarters. So unlike the Roosevelt, where control measures occurred late after the outbreak started, using standard public health measures can have an effect even under these fairly extreme conditions. I mean, I think that the Paris Island example, Eric, as you outline, teaches us a lot about transmission and mitigation measures. And the combination of shoe leather epi plus molecular epi allows us to understand transmission dynamics. And I think that's incredibly helpful for us to continue to decipher how this virus is successful. Because what the virus wants to do is reproduce and spread. And it's trying to outsmart our control measures or find ways to sieve through how we block it. And what happened at Paris Island was informed by the Roosevelt and other events as these communities tried to institute measures to block transmission. And even with that, because we are social beings, we interact with each other. And if we have asymptomatic viral replication in some of us, 
the ability to stop transmission is so difficult. And I think that's what we see here in this example of even with aggressive control measures, it's still porous and the virus can find ways in and establish little micro outbreaks. So I think it's very informative of the measures we need to think about to stop transmission. And we may not be able to stop transmission, but what we can do is stop outbreaks and keep them as micro outbreaks instead of macro outbreaks. And we've seen this go on at our colleges and other institutions that are trying to open up business and enable their activities to happen while mitigating active transmission. So you spoke about captive populations, and our third example of transmission is a thoroughly captive population. It's a description of the experience among prisoners in the state of Connecticut. Connecticut has an integrated prison and jail system, so authorities can take a uniform approach to screening for the disease. What happened in Connecticut? Well, Connecticut, like a lot of other congregate settings, had a lot of transmission within their prison and jail system. The system screened more than 10,000 prisoners, 9,700 of whom were men, and women, in fact, didn't have any positive cases. But among the men, there were 1,240 positive cases, and there was considerable morbidity, as many of these men were older and had other illnesses. So there were a total of 62 hospitalizations, 20 ICU admissions, and seven deaths. Most of the transmission, not surprisingly, occurred in prisoners who were held in dormitory-style housing. And as in other populations, older age was a primary predictor of mortality. I think it's hard to execute public health measures in all of these settings. The one important note is that the outbreak on the Roosevelt and the outbreak in Connecticut occurred fairly early during COVID-19, and therefore not all of the measures that we would take now could be put into place. Whereas, as Lindsay was saying before, with the Marine recruits, there was some experience in understanding which public health measures worked, and that did appear to mitigate some of the risk. I mean, I think that these three examples, the Roosevelt, Paris Island, prisons, as well as many other examples, nursing homes, colleges, educational campuses, hospitals, airlines, all show us how challenging the environments are to apply public health principles. And as we learn more, hopefully we get better at this, but it still is incredibly difficult to block transmission on a boat where you have to prevent it from ever getting on board versus in a prison or a nursing home or an educational campus where you're going to continue to have trafficking of individuals on and off that campus setting. Thus, there is always going to be reintroduction at some low level. And this requires us to think dynamically about how we apply our public health measures. And I think as we think about getting our economy open, the public health measures are not a one-size-fits-all. Each of the communities that we're trying to block transmission have different dynamics of introduction of the virus, amplification of the virus, and risk of illness associated with the virus, given the individuals in that community. And all of those are factors that have to be carefully weighed as we figure out how to open up activity while blocking transmission. In that regard, are there lessons here for this week's Thanksgiving holiday in the United States? 
No, no, there aren't. <laughs> I, I disagree with Lindsay. I think that there are a few clear ones here. If given a choice, don't hold your Thanksgiving aboard ship nor in prison. Um, but Thanksgiving is a complicated phenomenon because it's not just sitting in the room with Uncle Harry and putting Uncle Harry at risk. It's the getting to and from Thanksgiving. It's the flying, the driving and staying in other places, the eating out in restaurants on the way to back home. So I think there are a lot of opportunities for transmission. Right now, we're in a period where there's a lot of virus around. It's at the highest level it's been since the outbreak began. And I think people should be aware of that. And Eric, I think part of what you're pointing out is the risk at the Thanksgiving dinner table or in the Perry Thanksgiving activities with family are all the interactions the people that you're sharing the day with have had in the last several days. And that is very tricky to quantitate or assess. You know, my kids are in school. What's the risk of them going to school in a hybrid model? Eric, as you said, going to and from work or to the gathering of family, what kind of interactions are occurring? And so public health authorities give out guidance that are important to listen to about limiting the number of people, minimizing the indoor elements where possible. But the reality is we're trying to decrease the risk of somebody in that room, like somebody going on to the USS Roosevelt, being actively infected. And that's the question. And with eating, masks have to be off, you're talking, and therefore the aerosolization and spread of potential respiratory viruses are at higher risk. So these are all probabilities. There's no easy answer. But the more individuals in a closed space who have had more interactions with other people over the days before are the drivers of the risk. And that's impossible to assess, which is why it makes it so tricky to minimize transmission if you have a gathering of diverse individuals, what I mean family members, but diverse travel and activities in the days leading up to the event. And then the problem is if somebody is infected and infects others at the dinner table, they then go back to their communities and can then inoculate those communities. And that becomes a series of micro events that can become macro events. I think that last point is an important one and worth amplifying on. When you go to Thanksgiving, you may be putting yourself at risk or the people around the table at risk. But by putting them at risk, you're putting at risk the guy on the subway who commutes with your Uncle Harry, who is immunocompromised, or the person who bags your mother's groceries, who has COPD at the grocery store. So you're putting not just yourself at risk, you're putting communities at risk when you take chances. And an important piece of this, which you alluded to earlier, Eric, is in the U.S. right now, the infection force, the amount of virus circulating in so many communities across the country has never been higher. And that's why we have 150, 170,000 newly diagnosed cases a day, because there is so much virus around us. So it really increases the risk of any gathering of individuals right now because the infection force in the community is so high. So turning to potential therapies, this week we also published a study of convalescent plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. 
I'll give away the punchline, it didn't work. But what do we learn from this study that might apply to other therapies? Steve, this was a study performed in Argentina where patients received either plasma donated by patients with resolved COVID-19 or normal saline on top of whatever other treatments they were receiving. All the recipients had pneumonia and via a variety of criteria had moderate to perhaps early severe disease. Patients were evaluated 30 days after the intervention using the clinical status scale that's been commonly used in many of these studies. And the primary outcome was the distribution of clinical outcomes compared between the placebo and the antibody group. A total of 334 patients were enrolled with two thirds of them receiving plasma. Most had relative hypoxemia and the median time since diagnosis was eight days. As you indicated, Steve, there was no difference between the groups, and this was also true for the secondary outcomes, which they had several. It's certainly a disappointing result. In other studies using either plasma or monoclonal antibodies, poor responses have often been attributed to the fact that many patients had pre-existing antibodies. But in this group, half the patients, according to the authors, had not produced antibody, and many had only low titers prior to infusion. I think the one caveat to that, of course, is that eight days after diagnosis as a median, most people would have been expected to have antibodies, yet they, according to their measurements, it didn't appear to be true. Now, the details of this are certainly important, and it's possible that had different patients been chosen or a different protocol employed or a different assay for pre-existing immunity been employed, there would have been a better response. And I'm expecting that we'll see more of these studies, some of which may have slightly more positive results, especially if treatment is instituted very early in infection prior to these eight days. And it's certainly true that the FDA has already granted EUAs for treatment with monoclonal antibodies, which are a very analogous treatment. But we haven't seen the data on which these EUAs are based. And the early phase studies suggest that these therapies are certainly not home runs. And I think that will probably be true for convalescent plasma as well. I look at these data, particularly with convalescent plasma, which also has received an EUA, although that's a tricky EUA, given that it's not a homogeneous product, as you've already alluded to, Eric. But I look at these studies and these genre of studies that clinical research is really, really hard to do. And there are many moving parts and features that have to be taken into account. And you've alluded to some of them, Eric, in that you have to understand the mechanism of action of the treatment that you're interested in. You have to understand the disease so you can find the ideal clinical phenotype. Where in the disease might this treatment work, such as early before the individual mounts their own antibody response? And the timing of giving this therapy, and you actually know what's in the therapy and the complexity of convalescent plasma as opposed to a pharmaceutically made compound is that it's variable depending on the donor and how one understands the antiviral features of the donor plasma to have the optimal properties. So it has many different parts that have to be considered for this type of therapy but it just shows how hard these studies are and how many moving parts there are. And if one waits to get it all perfect, it may take years. And we have days given how sick our patients are. But then if we move quickly, how well have we sorted out each of these details? And that's a vexing problem for any clinical research endeavor in the COVID space. And these authors 
really tried hard to answer some of the key questions in this arena, although imperfectly given the complexity of the problem. Well, let me both agree and disagree with you, Lindsay, on that. Certainly, the authors did a great job of putting together a trial in a setting where not many groups have been able to pull off an RCT to study convalescent plasma because its use is already so widespread. And they performed a study under the circumstances, which was quite good. However, for a practicing clinician, it's really important to think about what results mean when they're performed under these circumstances where all the criteria you might want to make a decision aren't necessarily fulfilled. Where you'd like to have an RCT that gave you an unambiguous result, we'd always like to have that, and that's what everyone is striving for. It's been very difficult under these rather trying circumstances of trying to provide care to this large number of patients to get those clean answers. And so I think an unusual amount of analysis has to go into interpreting these trials so that they can be applied clinically. So more in the disappointing study department, we recently published three more articles about hydroxychloroquine. What were these studies testing and what can we learn from them? Well, each study was a little bit different. Without going into too much detail, one performed in the UK had death as an endpoint. Another from Brazil looked at improvement in clinical status, a scale analogous to that used in the convalescent plasma study that we just discussed. And a third from Catalonia looked at pre-exposure prophylaxis in exposed individuals. As you said, all were pretty resoundingly negative. There are caveats to each trial. Nonetheless, they join a very large number of negative RCTs published in our journal and in many others. Hydroxychloroquine just doesn't work. There are some important messages, however. First, there were a lot of preclinical data to suggest that hydroxychloroquine might work, although they were not that strong. It was still exciting to think that a cheap and relatively non-toxic treatment might make a difference. In fact, tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of people received this therapy, which turned out to be ineffective. At the same time, dozens of trials were started with little coordination among them. In the end, we ended up proving over and over again that it didn't work. But those trial resources could have been put to better use. In fact, once we had enough patients to test the hypothesis, almost any use would have been better for that trial capacity. So we've suffered and continue to suffer from the inability to coordinate among different investigations and to decide what we're going to test and how most efficiently we're going to test that in the face of an outbreak. That's not an easy thing to do, but it has been done because the NHS in the UK, which used the recovery network, was able to pull off testing of multiple hypotheses and could easily pivot to test different ideas. In the US, we haven't really accomplished that well at all. And I think before the next pandemic, we should really rethink our clinical trials infrastructure in this country. The second message for me is that there are real facts. Hydroxychloroquine simply doesn't work. Public health measures do work. Vaccines seem likely to work, even though we haven't seen the data yet. And that's not because I say it or Lindsay says it or Tony Fauci says it, and particularly because Lindsay says it. It's only true because we can prove it. Experts are a huge help in interpreting facts and helping put them into practice, but they don't create facts. During an epidemic, there are many opinions out there and those opinions can be important when we don't have facts. But once we have them, 
we need to believe the evidence that we have, the work that's been done to prove or disprove something. I guess I have to agree with you, Eric, on everything you said. Well, that was, that was really painful for you, I'm sure. I- including not listening to me, but the facts. And I think what the series of articles on hydroxychloroquine show is it does not work. However, what I think we need to really reflect on is why so much hydroxychloroquine use occurred clinically and so many different studies were launched in boutique fashion, not in a negative way, it's just what investigators in different communities could do. And it speaks to the desperation that we were facing as a global health community and as practitioners taking care of patients wanting to do something. So studies got started to treat it early, to treat it late, preemptive treatment, prophylaxis treatment, all the different ways one could deploy a medication to try and prevent the complications of an infection. And nothing worked, but a lot of patients were treated and a lot of guidelines even hinted at where this fit in. And many centers had this as part of routine practice. So I think it speaks to the importance of doing systematic, high quality research as quickly as possible. And Eric, as you point out, we're very disorganized in a scientific community as to how we respond to an epidemic or an outbreak and develop systematic knowledge. In some ways, that's a good thing because it allows novel ideas that the establishment may not appreciate to percolate through. In other ways, it's a disservice because we have so many groups and so much resources spent trying to ask the same question in different ways, often underpowered or limited power that takes time to show where it could be done more quickly. How we look forward to the next outbreak and organizing the community to respond, I think is worth some serious thought. And hopefully in the inter-pandemic period, we as a community will think about it. It's very challenging because who knows what the pathogen will be, how quickly we understand the pathophysiology, the biology, the mechanism of action of that organism. But where will it occur? When will it occur? In which populations? What resources are pre-positioned? These all add complexity to how we respond. But I do think that we need to, as a community, think a bit in the interpandemic period of how do we prepare and how do we leverage broad resources, not just at the big academic centers, but across the communities that are afflicted. Because that's where a lot of these studies occurred, which have added to our knowledge But the question is, can we do it more efficiently and more definitively early on to allow us to know what does work and what doesn't work and to minimize the inflammation that hope can bring to desperation without it necessarily being correct? Lindsay, I like to think of NASA as a paradigm. When NASA was coming up with rockets to go to the moon, they took an approach which was not the most efficient. They tried many different things. They had parallel tracks. They spent a lot more money than would have been spent had they only chosen one. But in the end, they had a lot of things to choose from. And that's kind of how medical research works. We have a lot of independent investigators. And as you said, they can apply their own ideas and their own creativity to the questions of what to test and how to test it. And under normal circumstances, that's the right way to go. 
it is what produces a lot of the robustness to our medical research system. But an outbreak is different. And I think you're right. All those questions about what we should have done really are now questions of what we should do next time this happens. And next time this happens, we need to have plans in place for how we're going to do things, including coordinating the clinical research. I agree that a strength of our community is the diversity of thought and the ability to ask different questions simultaneously by different groups. That brings knowledge forward. The question that I'm struggling with in the last six to eight months is how many times do we have to ask the same question by different groups in the setting of such urgency and limited resources? And so how do we think about creating a system where we can have those individual ideas emerge with some proofs of concept, but then quickly have some organized way to rapidly discern between ideas? Because I just worry that if we ask, like with hydroxychloroquine, having dozens and dozens of groups ask relatively small questions about hydroxychloroquine, many of which were very overlapping, was that the best use of collective resources? It needed to be done because we needed to answer the question, but there are many, many more questions in this space that I think we would have loved to have pursued to allow the next breakthrough to emerge that we weren't able to see because that compound wasn't easily assessed. And I think as we spoke with Dr. Woodcock a few weeks ago, there are ways to think about this going forward, but I think there's a different metronome for repurposed drugs that are cheap, that are already on the shelf and available versus a brand new compound with a proprietary interest ready to invest. And both sets of compounds I would like tested but they have different energies behind them. And we have to really think about that because repurposing is terrific. Novel is always exciting, but what we want is something that works and that we know when in the disease process it works and how do we get there. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.